The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing, and what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live, and that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. It's time we talk about some U.S. Open tennis. The USTA National Tennis Center has been the center of attention for the last two weeks as they host a mostly full-capacity crowd out in Flushing, New York. We are thrilled to be joined by the COO of that facility and really the man on the front lines of getting things done. We want to welcome Danny Zausner to the business of sports. So, Danny, you are the guy who basically runs the show for the U.S. Open. You make things happen, and it's been a crazy couple of years. Over the last 18 months, you went from converting the tennis center into a field hospital in the early days of COVID-19. Then you converted the structure back to hold the 2020 U.S. Open. So what do things look like this year, hosting the Open after what's been a crazy 2020? Well, I, I could tell you that we honestly don't think we've we, we no longer say we've seen it all. That's for sure. Uh, you, you just you, you prepare for everything that could possibly come our way. And, you know, once again, this year, we were, you know, starting as early as February, we thought based on the information we had related to COVID at that time, that maybe we'd see 25 percent fans. And that was if and when we got approval from the state of New York, which ended up not coming until June. And so that delayed our whole ticket on sale, everything we did by about four months. Um, but, you know, if you can get us good weather and the players are all here and thankfully we'll be able to get the vast majority of the players here. Uh, we've had an incredibly successful U.S. Open so far and as we head into finals weekend. How has the revenue been so far since last year? Obviously, we know what happened last year. COVID just wiped out a lot of sports. How has the, the revenue bounced back for you guys? The, the revenues have been strong. We, we were very fortunate. Obviously, last year we relied pr primarily on broadcast revenues and, and sponsorship revenue. There was zero ticket revenue. Uh, and while we were delayed selling tickets this year, um, we, we, the numbers have been really good on the ticket front. We traditionally sell about 15% of our tickets to our international fans, and realistically, we just didn't see that happening for this year, and, and we're correct. You know, what might have been 15% in the years past is certainly no more than 5%. Um, but domestically, our numbers are great. Our, our sponsors could not wait to get back on site and activate, be with the fans. Uh, obviously, a lot of New York-based companies that just hasn't been able to be interacting with their markets over the last 12 to 18 months, and we're happy to provide that opportunity. How does the lack of international fans traveling all the way to the U.S. Open and attending change things uh, for this year? I mean, I feel like out-of-town fans is, is very much a part of the fabric of the U.S. Open. 
There's no question. We were prepared for it, and certainly all the culinary offerings that we have that's meant to appeal to every single fan, regardless of where they come from, they're here. Uh, and the one thing that's uh, beneficial for the 85% of the fans who are coming out to the Open is the fact that the grounds are a little less crowded. Uh, we purposely only sold about 50% of what we would sell on a daily basis of oh, our grounds passes. Uh, we had a last-minute hiccup with the city where they insisted that we uh, ensured that everyone who came to the event were vaccinated. So we announced that literally 48 hours before we were opening the doors. Uh, incredibly well received by the fans. Uh, so we really got very, li- very limited pushback on that. And with the exception of a hurricane, a typhoon, uh, <laughs> extreme heat, and everything else, it's been a piece of cake. So, Danny, were you surprised by all of that with the deal coming at the last minute? I, I totally understood where they were coming from in terms of wanting to get people vaccinated in the city. I was incredibly appreciative of that. Ultimately, you know, they were trying to view Arthur Ashe Stadium as an enclosed structure uh, when we close the roof, which simply isn't the case. We have every model under the sun to prove that, that it's basically a canopy or an umbrella over an existing stadium. Uh, but they wanted us to do the right thing, and the right thing by our fans and by the players and, and by everybody was to go to the vaccination rule. So, yes, surprise in terms of the timing, because we would have loved to have communicated that months ago, even before we went on sale. Uh, but, again, with the limited pushback that we've gotten, it, it's worked quite well. It's good to hear there wasn't a lot of pushback from fans, given how short notice that, that um, directive was from the city. What kind of COVID measures were taken for the players and, and what does that look like for the fans? Or can the fans not really see that? So interestingly enough, I think the fans can see some of it, but some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and the, the players specifically are one of the things that the fans were very curious to understand. And the way that this mandate was dictated by the city, not specific to us, but to venues, indoor venues, uh, that it applied to the fans, that 100% vaccination were required for the fans, but for the actual players or artists, and in terms of if it was like a Carnegie Hall-type setting, um, those particular performers, if they didn't live in New York City, they weren't required to be vaccinated. We went into this tournament knowing that a minimum of 50% of the players were vaccinated. Uh, we offered them in, in a couple of the tournaments prior to the U.S. Open to be able to get vaccinated at those tournaments. But knowing that almost half of the players wouldn't be vaccinated, we entered them all into a three-day regimen of being tested. And while the city has been hovering about 2.5% on a positive rate, uh, the players and, and their entourages have been way below 1%. So we're, we're doing significantly better than the city's been doing with positivity rates. I don't mean to get up all in your business here, Danny, but you're the guy. When they want renovations and improvements, you're the money guy. So what are we looking at for the off season for any improvements and and cost wise, I mean, obviously you, you you're the man that watches all the pennies and dollars. Can you take us through that process? Well, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that our organization gave us approval over the last five to seven years to spend about six hundred and fifty million dollars to redo our entire site, which included a roof over Arthur Ashe Stadium, a brand new Louis Armstrong Stadium, and a grandstand, and basically we reinvented the entire grounds. So we are not an organization that ever rests on its laurels. So no matter how high the wow factor is for the fans, we look at any opportunity to improve it for the following year. Uh, 2018 was the first year that the site was completely rebuilt, and we got the benefit of that for 18 and 19. 19 produced record-breaking 
in every category, broadcast, sponsorship, ticket sales. Obviously, 2020, no fans. 2021, they're coming back, but not at that 100% that we saw in 19. So when we look forward, we know that there's really not going to be building in the short term. Uh, Lou Shear, who's our chief revenue officer, has done an incredible job with our sponsors and partners and bringing in new partners that can complement everything we got on site. So there's a tremendous amount of upside. The growth of recreational tennis in the U.S. right now is exploding, and it's an opportunity for us to introduce new people to the sport and to the U.S. Open. And we also see great opportunities internationally in markets that we just haven't really had a big presence in in the past. And hopefully the international fans can return next year. One thing that we've mentioned several times, and I feel like we're dancing around it a lot, is the roof and the extreme weather that we had because the remnants of Hurricane Ida came through the New York tri-state area about a week ago. And it wasn't expected to be terrible. I mean, no one really knew it was going to be as bad as it turned out to be. Um, Louis Armstrong Arena has a retractable roof that does cover players and fans against rain. But Ida was just a different thing entirely. And the winds took it to a whole new level. Talk about the challenges that night. So interestingly enough, we had a meeting the week before the tournament began when we, we were first bracing for, for uh, Hurricane Henri, and we had taken down the whole site in preparation for that oh, wow. Saturday before the tournament was starting, and then we were able to rebuild everything and be open to the public that following Monday. And one of the things I had mentioned in the meeting is that everyone on our team in the tournament operations dealing with the players needed to remember that Lewis Armstrong Stadium is a naturally ventilated stadium that is not completely enclosed. And while it can keep the rain out, if we get driving winds that were forecasted from a hurricane, that wind can blow into that structure. We have louvers on the north and south end that keep the rain out when it's a mild day, and it obviously allows the air to flow through. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what we saw. The roof did everything it was supposed to do uh, from above. But when you get driving 30, 40-mile-an-hour winds, we're a short distance from the Flushing Bay. Um, Basically, the stadium did what it's going to do. It it drives in the rain, and it, it made it not possible for the players to play. Uh, one of the benefits we have is Arthur Ashe Stadium was able to keep all the water out. So we were able to take the matches from Armstrong, move them into Ashe, and complete the matches that needed to be played between those two stadiums. Danny, does it make a difference from the facility side or the broadcast side? How does it work with your rights partners? Well, we are incredibly fortunate. ESPN is a phenomenal partner for us. And much like the way the USTA views the U.S. Open. Every year we do our surveys with our fans, with our broadcast partners, with our sponsors to understand what worked, what didn't work. And frankly, if they all gave us 100 scores, we'd still be saying, well, what are we going to do next? And ESPN looks at it the same way. Uh, we thought we had a lot of cameras on Arthur Air Stadium when there were eight or ten of them, and now we're at 17, 19 cameras. Last year they were able to experiment um, with no fans in the stands, so they were able to put cameras in locations they never were able to do before. They saw the reaction to it. So you're absolutely right. Every year is an opportunity with our broadcast partners, with streaming, with everything else we do to try and figure out what is next and how do we make this event that much, you know, get the fans that much closer to the action. And we'll never stop. Yeah, it's something that you continue to build on. I mean, last year was unfortunate in that you couldn't have any fans, but you were able to host the U.S. Open Live. Um, How did that experience of not having fans uh, prepare you to build in some of the lessons that you've learned from last year to ramp up the fan engagement for this year. I wonder what it looks like this year after you went through a year like 2020. Yeah, you were talking about just camera angles and what ESPN does. And, you know, we were able to see what some of those angles that worked and 
incredibly well, but yet at the same time, there'd be a, a person paying us considerable amount of money to sit in that seat this year. So uh, we had to try to figure out how we could do both. Where, where could we put those cameras? Uh, we knew last year that we wanted to try and keep as many people off the court as possible besides the players. So this year we went to all technology on all courts. And so there's no line judges. It's just a chair umpire, reduce the number of ball persons on the court, try to make the court as clean as possible for the players. And from a broadcast perspective, what you're looking when you're watching that broadcast is, is the, it's about the players. Um, so the other thing we've done is last year we put all the players in a centralized hotel so that we can kind of keep them in that bubble. Uh, this year with the restrictions being lifted for the most part, we offered them the opportunity to be in a centralized hotel, but now it's in Manhattan so they could be a little able to get out and about more than they were last year where they were really sequestered to their rooms and to the hotel that we had set up. Um, so, you know, there, there were benefit, There were some benefits in, in a sadistic way to not having the fans on site last year, but clearly it's nothing we ever wanted to go to again. And while we're not at 100% capacity, even being able to see the modifications we've made to the site with 80% of the fans on the site, we know how well it'll work in 2022 when, as you say, the international fans come back. Last year, you only had the tennis players, as you mentioned, and maybe the vol- some volunteers uh, that worked the uh, the tournament during the COVID uh, era, and this year, uh, and it's got to be a, a big bit of a relief for the people that sell the souvenirs, for the people that sell refreshments, uh, the people that sell food yeah. there at the facility. That has to be uh, something that has been a big plus for all those people. No question. Uh, we actually hire in excess of seven thousand people to work the event. And I, I will tell you that the, the positive is, is that we were able to get year after year at least 50% of the people come back year after year. We have some guest service personnel who have been here more than 40 years. Uh, the flip side to that is right now in the New York market, as you know, it's really hard to, to get people to, to, to work. And so of that 7,000, there have been some, like you mentioned, the food service workers and merchandise workers that have been incredibly successful getting people. But there's been others that, that, that it's been a struggle. And so it's been a challenge to to staff all 7,000 of those positions. We're we're there, and and the fans don't see any change in in the services that we're providing. But that was, for all the positive about bringing people back, the negative has been just how difficult it's been to get people to work. Danny, we're coming to the conclusion of this year's Open. How soon will you begin planning for the 2022 Open? Well, the running joke always is the day after the Open, we're already behind schedule for the following year. So we uh, we don't we don't pat ourselves on the back or rest on our laurels for very long. Uh, we basically spend the rest of September and October to understanding what just happened, what worked, what didn't work, and and really what's next. Uh, you know, you can never – we're always in a sales mode for ticketing and for sponsorship and, and any sales in between. And in terms of the facility is concerned, you know, we go back to being a community tennis-driven facility that's open 11 months a year. And while that's happening, whatever construction needs to take place, whatever changes we want to make, uh, has to get off the ground immediately. Otherwise, it doesn't get done in time for the next year's event. Yeah, I'm curious about that because the city and indeed the country is experiencing labor shortages everywhere. So when it comes to things like construction, it takes a lot longer to get um, the right people in place. It takes a lot longer to get the supplies you need in place. How is that affecting your planning? 
Well, I will tell you, thankfully, the, the, the heavy lifting with the construction that we did over the past five years, uh, I'm thankful that we finished it in 2018 and yeah. we weren't in the middle of that right now because I'm not so sure if, like, Louis Armstrong Stadium was the last piece of the puzzle for us and that finished in 18. If that was slated to finish in 2020 or 2021, it, it would not have been able to be completed on time. To your point, the lead times on construction is staggering, let alone getting the workforce to do the work. Have you had any input, and I'm sure you have, but it, the kind of input where you sit around the table with some of the great tennis stars, like a Billie Jean King, uh, and and talk about, hey, what can we do to make this facility better, one, from a, a tennis pro standpoint, and two, from tennis fan standpoint? Are you taking any input from the players? Well, I could tell you that our, our Stacey Allister is our tournament director and the first female tournament director of a Grand Slam tournament in the history of Grand Slams. You know, her relationships with both the WTA and the ATP players is very strong, and she speaks to many players, not just at other tournaments, but one-on-one via text or phone, whatever it might be, to get their input on, hey, how are we doing in the old Ed Koch days of how am I doing? Uh, and as far as our facility is concerned, yeah, our surveys are invaluable from the fans to understand, you know, if we introduce new food items, food items on the site, you know, what's the response to it? It's not just about the sales, but it's the experience that they, you know, was it as good as we anticipated it being? And same thing with our uh, our sponsor partners and our broadcast partners to understand every aspect of what they're doing, and we meet without them. It's a three-week event, but we, we plan and, and meet with them the other 49 weeks of the year. Danny, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. I know it's been a crazy busy week for you. USTA National Tennis Center COO and, of course, friend of the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, Danny Zausner. Thank you, guys. That'll do it for us this week. You've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. And catch those on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Scarlett Fu, or on Twitter, at Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. And I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter, at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.